Hi, everyone. Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. Carrie and Austin back for a Q&A session with our returning guest, Dr. Sai Woon, a practicing veterinarian who's also the Florida representative of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. Thanks again for sitting down to chat with us. You just couldn't stay away, Dr. Woon, right? You just had no. such a fun time with us last time. <laughs> I can't believe you guys even invited me back. <laughs> thank I was you. actually like, this is like a record for how quickly we've gotten someone back on the show yeah. because it was such a great, such a great time last time. Yeah, it was it was a very fun time. Yeah. Well, our our topic for today is a very fun one. Um, What are some of the most common questions asked to veterinarians Uh, from uh, heartworm preventatives to bad breath? uh, We're going to get into the nitty gritty about questions Dr. Woon hears all the time. So uh, let's get started. The first question that we have uh, that I'm sure comes up a lot is, should I declaw my cat and why or why not? That is a very controversial topic, um, but I hope that we are progressing to the more, you know, welfare friendly side, which is that it is not humane to be declawing your cats. It is not just a simple procedure of plucking out the, the end claw. It actually involves, you know, surgical removal of that end knuckle. So yeah, it's it is, not a mani pedi. Like, yeah, yeah. No. too no. many people are like, you know, <laughs> this is like the equivalent of taking my cat to the salon and getting my cat a beautiful little net, like manicure, and it is not that. Mm-hmm. Yes, not at all. And it it isn't even just the surgical procedure itself, which is extensive, um, but the after effects from that mm-hmm. procedure. Right. A lot of complications can occur even years down the track from these poor cats that have been declawed. Um, I'm originally from Australia, where I also practice as a veterinarian, and it is illegal to declaw cats in Australia. It is regarded as completely archaic and inhumane. And, you know, if you told multiple Australian vets that this procedure is routine here, they'd be really quite shocked. That's fantastic. Uh, now yeah. I get to shout out like Aussie, Aussie, Aussie or something to say <laughs> yes. hooray for that. You're, yeah. you're an honorary Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of states luckily are following this progressive suit. Um, they're starting to initiate these bans. It's already banned in uh, Austin, Texas and New York State and, and others yeah. across the country. So it's a wave that we're starting to see, thankfully. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, Austin. Like, you know, just hearing you and Sai talk about that, it, that it's still controversial. You know, it reminds me of what a bubble that's, that, I, that I'm in to a certain degree, because mm. having been here for like 20 years, yeah. I was kind of like, really? We're still at a point where this is largely controversial because, you know... I guess so. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Here in South Florida, I've worked in multiple practices where it was perhaps known that it wasn't the most welfare friendly procedure, but Mm -hmm. it was done regardless because it does provide profit to practices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of clinics are all about the business and the bottom line, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Whereas um, in my opinion, it is not something that should be allowed. It should have been outlawed years ago. And I hope that, um, you know, that attitude is spreading throughout the rest of the states. So Sai, just out of curiosity, I mean, one of the things that I would assume is that for the vets that are moving away from it, that they want to have, are there some good sort of backup ideas? Because I think that, you know, a lot of vets are like maybe doing it with good intentions, thinking they're trying to solve a client's problem for them, but there are probably more humane measures to help solve, like if a cat is scratching furniture and things like that. 
Yeah, certainly. And that's what's not discussed enough, the alternative mm-hmm. deforming. Um, you know, there are obviously there's little gel, like gel caps that you can place on the yeah. floors to prevent the damage to your furniture. Um, I don't know what those and, are called. They're so cute. Those actually um, do look like a little mani-pedi. Yeah, really? They kind of do. <laughs> and they're not they're not for every cat. Just like a, mani- uh-huh. you know, a manicure or acrylic nails isn't for every female. I, I wouldn't survive with long acrylic nails. Hanging off my <laughs> right. I just, I'm used to having short nails. Um, similarly with the cats, some just will not tolerate those, those caps being placed on their claws. Um, but the issue with declawing is that the scratching behavior for cats is completely natural for them. That's how they, it, it's almost like a stress release for them, for them to be able to, to perform that scratching behavior. So, when we're eliminating their capacity to even do that, that causes a lot of behavioral issues in cats. Um, you know, it's like imprisoning them from being able to perform a natural behavior. Um, not to mention, like I alluded to earlier, down the road, um, there can be bony growth, bony painful growth mm-hmm. that continue growing um, from the area that was surgically excised. Oh. And um, they then have to have a revision surgical procedure just to ameliorate that mm-hmm. and that's just not acceptable when you know the alternatives as well are just keeping the claws short um one issue that a lot of people raise in favor of declawing is that um you know if, if a person is elderly or has an immunocompromised um underlying condition um they're at risk of their cat potentially scratching them and causing mm-hmm. quite severe damage but the thing is, what happens when you take away these claws, these natural defenses for them, is they resort to biting. And mm. biting is far more dangerous oh, that's interesting. Than, mm-hmm. than scratching. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, I, and I like the alternative uh, that you were discussing too, Carrie, about um, options here. I know that a lot of my friends have scratching posts or other enrichment areas Absolutely. for the cat yeah. that they can't that they are allowed and you know kind of trained to go to uh because it lets them uh exhibit those natural behaviors that you're talking about so, so. definitely yeah there's so many different types of um scratching activities they can be given you know there's a cardboard um with the rivets along it that's those are really popular mm-hmm. and you can find different ways to make those things more attractive and sprinkle catnip on them. Um, there's different sprays to attract the cats towards these scratching posts. You know, there's, there's a lot of, of alternatives that often people don't realize they should try first. Mm, and yeah. What about uh, I'm noticing on my dog or my cat, they have a little bit of a lump or a mass that's growing under the skin. What should I do there? Yeah. So that mass or lump, it could range from anything as innocuous as a cyst, you know, a fluid-filled cyst that just needs to have the fluid removed, or it could be as dangerous as an actual cancerous tumor. Um, so unfortunately, there's no way for us to just visually um, look at a lump and just diagnose it. Um, they do have to be seen by your veterinarian. They have to undergo sampling, whether needle sampling or an actual excision biopsy. Um, so those are the ways that they actually require to be diagnosed. Yeah. One of our dogs is dealing with this right now. And it's, it's, it, we're really lucky because, um, you know, she started off with this little tiny lump on her chest 
And I've been worrying because it's gotten bigger, but we have repeatedly have it. I mean, it it looks really odd. You know, it's like right on her chest and it's sort of like prominently sticking out, but we've had it tested multiple times and it's a lipoma. Um, But if we hadn't had it tested, like I, you know, it, it, it was just like, I was so nervous that it was a tumor. And from what I understand, you really can't tell necessarily by just sort of touching it or anything like that. You actually have to do sort of, was it a chemical test that you get from the from the insertion or is it something else or assessing like the actual texture of it or? Um, No. So, I mean, all of those aspects are relevant to the assessment of a mass, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at the size, the rate of growth, um, the kind of texture of it. Um, But more importantly, and I guess this is what you're asking when you do the needle sampling, it's called cytology Mm -hmm. and you basically are extracting cells from the actual mass, whatever the mass could be. And you're placing it on a slide and then using special dyes Mm -hmm. to basically enable the, um, the different cells to be visualized under the microscope. And that helps you to get the diagnosis. Mm. So, so the takeaway on this is really, you know, yeah. you can diagnose it, Dr. Sai Woon, yeah. but people at home who are not veterinarians cannot diagnose yeah. it and should not assume <laughs> it is bad or good and should talk to a professional. Yes, that's so essential because guess what happens? Everyone resorts to Dr. Google and <laughs> you could yeah. diagnose. I mean, Dr. Google isn't <laughs> always right. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think there, there are a lot of, you know, lawsuits against dr google google at this point because he often gets it wrong and clients will believe dr google so you know when i'm always grateful when clients come straight to us and and show us the mass and enable us to sample and find out because the sooner that we can find out what the mass is the sooner we can deal with it whether it needs to be actually surgically removed asap or whether it's just something that needs to be monitored Mm. Also, is it just me or does Dr. Google give you like paranoid down the rabbit hole uh, oh, totally results awesome. anyway? Totally. I'm just like, yeah. what? Yeah. It's the worst yeah. case scenario yeah. every single time. But Absolutely. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, def- I mean, I've had countless clients freaking out over <laughs> a cyst or, yeah. or not freaking out enough over something that is really potentially fatal. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of Dr. Google mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. <laughs> But it's understandable why people resort to that. Right, right, right. Um, So another, I think, uh, prevalent topic uh, at all times of the year is um, your animals, especially dogs needing heartworm preventatives. Uh, Mm. I say specifically dogs is because mine is indoors all the time. Never let them roam around Mm -hmm. all day, every single day. Uh, but it, it only takes, you know, one or two instances of a mosquito bite or something like that. And so just wanted to talk about what your, what your take is on heartworm preventatives. Really good point to raise because I would say, especially, I mean, I'm in South Florida where it's a humid climate and mosquitoes are prevalent. Um, but you know, the issue with these mosquitoes and heartworm is that as you alluded to, it it can just take one bite for your pet to be inoculated with the heartworm larvae. Mm. And so So as much as your pet might spend 100% of its time indoors, 
Have you ever gotten a mosquito bite when you're indoors inside? All the time. Yes. Course. All the time. Of course. So on a regular basis. Yeah. Right. And yeah, they love me too. And so yeah. that that just answers the question because I have a lot of clients who have said to me, Well, I don't need heartworm preventatives. My dog's always indoors. Mm-hmm. And I explain it's not, it's not that your dog has to have constant, you know, um, exposure to mosquitoes in masses. It's just that one bite. And Heartworm disease is deadly. Um, these heartworms, once they're injected into the tissues, they then eventually migrate and continue maturing and they make their way to the heart vessels. Um, and that is why they're called heartworm because mm. they grow at their largest in the heart vessels and they block the blood from flowing through those heart vessels. And you can just imagine that is um, potentially a fatal occurrence. So again, long, long story short from this one, the takeaway is prevention is so much cheaper mm-hmm. than treating your pet for heart. Oh work. my gosh. The treatment is in the thousands. Oh, uh, and gosh. the issue is despite it being treatable, the poor pet has to undergo some pretty intensive medications um, just to be treated. Um, and it, it extends over quite a long course, many, many months of treatments and injections, intramuscular injections. Mm. It's not worth it. And it is so much more costly than the monthly preventatives. Uh, One that I was really excited to talk about because it is like clockwork for my uh, rescue little pup, Omi. Uh, Why, why does my dog lick uh, his or her paws so much, especially Ooh. during certain seasons. Is it behavioral? Yes. Is it, it, and it could be a plethora of reasons for Omi. She's got, she's got to go to therapy, but I'd love right. to. Because Omi's in the peanut me. butter jar. That's yeah, why. She's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All sorts of possible reasons. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Um, there, I would say you can usually break it down into two main categories. Um, when I have a patient who is constantly, incessantly licking their paws, um, I would tend to classify it into behavioral versus mm-hmm. allergies. And within the allergies, I would say infection is part of that as well. Oh. Um, so, you know, with regards to the behavioral one, uh, anything that results in anxiety can then lead to the constant licking of the paws. It's kind of like thumb sucking, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a way for them to release that anxiety and that stress. And also the licking itself, it helps to release endorphins. And so it kind of feels good, you know, endorphins and serotonin. So it's that vicious cycle. They keep licking and licking and it has that comforting feel. And it also can be somewhat of an obsessive compulsive behavior. Um, that they can develop. And so things to consider are, is your dog effectively stimulated? Are they so bored that they've kind of resorted to licking Mm -hmm. their paws and that's kind of their activity that they can at least engage in? Um, Or are they having some major anxiety inducing event um, in their household or, or in whatever situation they're being exposed to. And they're trying to compensate by licking their paws incessantly. Austin, I hope you feel really guilty now. <laughs> yeah. So maybe your dog yeah. does need a little therapy. talk with Omi. I, I need to <laughs> about have her talk. feelings. Yeah. yeah, really. yeah. I, need, I need, we need much more. I thought I was taking her for enough walks, but I guess that's not the thing. Uh, no, I, it's, Apparently it's, not. It, I think, I think also, I think also, 
uh, particularly during the the allergy seasons, it comes a lot more. So it's oh, not just behavior, yeah. right? So, yeah, it could be allergies. My, yeah, that's my. He's trying to dig his be, way out, Austin. Could be allergies. <laughs> So yes, it might not be that you're traumatizing your poor baby. Um, it could be more so that, and this is, I would say, the more common reason for the licking is the allergies. We do tend to see it very seasonally um, during the summer months. Um, the grasses can act as an allergen. Um, mm. Pollens can act as an allergen. And the reason they start licking is because their paws are itchy. And uh, what can also occur is on top of the allergy that causes them to, to lick their paws incessantly, they then in they can create their own infection um, mm. because there's that constant licking and it's causing inflammation of the skin, the tissues, um, and that makes that region more susceptible to infection. Mm. Um, so when they have bacterial infections, yeast infections, those are very itchy conditions to deal with. And mm -hmm. um, they itch their paws by licking incessantly. Well, I think this is a nice transition to another common question because um, one of the other common questions that you had, had identified is, you know, why is my pet's breath bad? And I got to say, if I were licking my feet all the time, I don't think my <laughs> breath would smell that good, oh my honestly. God. Right? The things that Perfect they memory. put in their mouths. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we sometimes we I don't want to know why my press my pet's breath is bad. I I really I don't want to know. No, no. Yeah. Good. You probably yeah. don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, they're hiding things that you don't want to see. Um, but yeah, I, I would say though, the most common cause of bad breath is periodontal disease, dental disease. You know, how many of us are really brushing our dog's teeth every day? Um, it is a huge task to undertake. I honestly mm -hmm. don't expect every pet owner to have to brush their pet's teeth. Um, but what's really important is that they are having their teeth routinely examined mm. by the veterinarian because that enables us to give that professional objective opinion as to what is needed for that pet. So does your pet need an annual dental cleaning, you know, mm. scale and polish? They have those procedures done just like humans. And those are you know, prophylactic preventative procedures that enable them to maintain their teeth. Um, unfortunately, you know, the smaller breeds are a little more susceptible to dental disease. They have the more crowded mouths. Um, but, it, you know, if you are able to brush your dog's teeth, that has been shown to be the most effective way to stave off that periodontal disease that leads to that absolutely awful breath that mm, you can smell. Interesting. Austin, how's Omi with uh, getting her teeth brushed? I, I, my dogs are kind of like, you know, you call it teeth brushing, but it's actually peanut butter toothpaste eating. So yeah, that that's the biggest one for us. If I, I would say it's only about 10 to 12 bites in the process. Once every three, <laughs> every time we go in the brush, she's like, ah, ah, ah. Uh, but other than that, we like to do, I don't know. I, I was curious about um, the, the the treats that help with um, oh yeah the, the ones that clean your dog's clean, teeth is that just a marketing thing or yeah, does is that this a actually yeah. work that's what I'm curious about gosh that's such a contentious question that you guys are presenting me with throwing you into the hot there's seat yep such, there's such a range of dental treats out there mm. and it is very dependent on your individual pet and the way that they consume the treat because 
while one pet um, <laughs> might, you know, chomp and chomp on the treat and they're effectively polishing their teeth at every perfect angle that you'd want them to be doing yeah. it with, um, your other dog might bite the dental treat twice and then swallow it. Yep, so that's my beagle. Yeah, yeah. 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 My toothbrush. Yeah. Right. I hate that toothbrush. Thank you. Very good. I'll be going. Yeah. <laughs> Not very this smart dog yeah. right there. Yeah. So, you're like, I, I'm just going to use this as a treat opportunity. Um, no. you know, it's that there's also certifications for certain treats and, and different dental products. Um, but in the end, it is really so individualistic in terms of whether it's going to work for your pet. For mm -hmm. instance, um, as well, one of my dogs, uh, when she used to chew the, the veterinary branded um, hide, so raw hide has lots of issues with, you know, ingestion when mm -hmm. dogs swallow it and they can potentially yeah. be choking or they can have a bowel impaction. Um, but there are actually um, veterinary branded raw hides that are kind of like a single layer, like a single thin layer. And mm. so they're purported to not cause those major issues. Um, but regardless of them only being single layered, my, um, one of my dogs, uh, he was just a huge foodie. He loved food. He, he would eat, you know, he could eat the whole bag of dog food if given the opportunity. Um, so when he was handed this raw hide, he would kind of chew it for maybe 30 seconds and then it, it was barely done, you know, cause they, they're meant to swallow when it's really minuscule. He was barely done and he would try to swallow it and he oh would God. choke. So oh, no. He was banned from ever consuming that. Whereas my other dog, she was able to just chew that for hours on end. Uh, mm. So it, it's very individual. The only other uh, big highlight for, for the question, the, you know, kind of the Q and A's, is very appropriate uh, as we're in Maryland. It's like 97 degrees, mm -hmm. 96 degrees out right now. So, you know, should I shave my pet's fur during these hot summer months? What What mm -hmm. is your take on this? It's another very contentious question um, amongst breeders, groomers, veterinarians. You're going to you're going to have both camps in terms of whether you should or not. Um, from my perspective, when you have dogs that are designed to be in Arctic climates, you know, they mm -hmm. have a double coat. So the double coat, just, you know, dogs technically all have somewhat of a double coat. They have the outer guard hairs and then they have the undercoat, which is like thicker. Um, mm -hmm. But these, you know, breeds, those typical breeds, huskies, um, you know, they have those thick coats and those are designed to insulate them from the cold. Um, so when you then throw one of those dogs into a exceedingly hot, humid environment like Florida, mm -hmm. um, understandably, that insulation is probably going to be somewhat exacerbated by the heat that they're experiencing. Um, so as much as you don't necessarily want to shave them down to the skin, because sure, that can cause greater exposure of their skin to the sun and there has mm. been you know discussion and no real hard peer-reviewed evidence but there's been discussions about how that can cause them to be susceptible to things like skin cancer from the solar impact mm. Mm. Um, but I would certainly be more inclined to at least shave them to a shorter length because mm. the longer the hair the thicker the coat you're you're enabling that insulation and what happens is that they're not getting that airflow. Um, there's a lot of myths that get circulated about this very topical issue. You know, there's like infrared um, 
picture that gets sent around and and people say look the you know the red part which is the hottest part and the um you know the different uh colors that are indicative mm. of like cool versus hot um they're like the, the red is is on the outermost regions of the shaved dog and therefore it's more hot and it's less so on the not shaved dog but that's actually quite a myth because hmm. the reason that you're seeing that um that distribution of color is because the shaved dog is able to release that heat more effectively. And so it kind of shows oh, up in that image as a result. Huh. So there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to this topic. Um, and there definitely needs to be more research and, and hard peer-reviewed evidence, you know, pursued to be able to substantiate either side. Um, but I've certainly spoken with board certified dermatologists and they agree with my position that I just mentioned. Oh, that's great to know. This is really helpful for me because I'm looking at my hairy little Chihuahua Pomeranian mix right now. And I think one of the questions I would have for you, Sai, is, you know, should, if if I opt to shave him down a little bit, should I go for like a Mohawk or sort of like a mid nineties era George Clooney kind of like a Caesar? Like I'm kind of, I don't know how I feel. I'm glad you mentioned that your baby is part Pomeranian because um, one of the things that, that really, um, as people opposed to the shaving is that Pomeranians and, and other thick coated breeds, they can experience something called post clipping alopecia, mm. um, which basically means those, I mentioned there are the, you know, the double coat, there's the outer and the um, undercoat and it doesn't grow back. Whoa, very interesting. It takes, it takes quite a long time because those hairs, they sit in the resting phase of hair growth. And mm. so it can take quite some time. And, and sometimes uh, these Pomeranians, when they're not having that normal expected growth rate, um, they have to be treated with things like melatonin. Um, so that's that's why it perpetuates that belief that you shouldn't ever shave these mm, thick breeds because look at what happened to this Pomeranian and that Pomeranian. Um, but when they're in that hot climate, you also have to consider, you know, what what is their welfare need? Um, you mm. know, a lot of vets can can certainly attest to the fact that when their clients do end up shaving down their dogs, those dogs are no longer panting and and mm. seeming restless during those those really hot summer months. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I would say in answer to your question, I, I would certainly go for the mohawk. Okay. All yeah, right. Definitely mohawk. keep the mohawk, mohawk for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah right. I agree. But it sounds that. like not shaving all the way down for him, but maybe giving him a nice sort of summer cut would be the appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. You hear that floof? Don't you try to argue <laughs> with me about it later. All right. <laughs> um, Dr. Saiwoon, thank you so much. I feel like I don't have to berate my own veterinarian every time with all these questions now. So <laughs> it makes it makes everyone's experience all the more positive. Uh, were, was there anything else? that you wanted to leave with our audience? Um, any takeaways before we kind of wrap up this episode? I guess uh, just with regards to the heartworm preventatives, you know, talk about those options with your veterinarian um, because every pet is going to be more suited to a certain type of heartworm preventative. There's a huge range out there. Um, topical heartworm preventatives, oral heartworm preventatives, that's really something that's best discussed with your vet who knows your pet best. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Dr. Sai Woon, a practicing veterinarian and Florida representative of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association. As always, it's we're happy to have you back. We might do another record for having you back on as a as a as a third time. So uh 
have the phone ready um, for the next time. But that's all we have for today's show. Uh, For more helpful animal tips and advice, you know where to find us, humanesociety.org. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Humane Voices.